0: He is worthy, and it's good to be together to praise His name. I can see that more of you are excited to be together in person in church, and we're thankful for that. We're thrilled about that. We are slowly increasing the capacity that we're letting back into the room. Hopefully soon we'll worship be able to worship without the masks, but we're trusting God as we regather, we and we're glad that you're with us to do that, uh, to proclaim how worthy our God is. If you've been around Chapel Street for a while, you know that we want to be a family of neighborhood churches to reproduce ourselves in communities so that more people would come to know the goodness and grace and mercy of God. And if you've been with us, you've heard us talk about our North Aurora campus. Just off Butterfield Road and Banbury Road, across from Schneider Elementary School, the construction is underway, the remodeling is underway. Pastor Andrew, who had, he and his wife Janae had a baby boy, they're fourth, so they're growing that campus the old-fashioned way. But we're thrilled about that. Uh, and also he's preparing the, the core team and will be recruiting the launch team as we go this spring and summer. And some of you also know that we have a very unique financial opportunity. What's left on the project was just over a million dollars. A very generous person in our church said they would like to match up to 50% of the remaining balance of the project. And so we've been asking and encouraging you, if you're a guest here, if you're just visiting, or if you're still new with us, we don't want you to feel pressure to give. But if this is your church home, whether or not you ever attend there, would you prayerfully consider what you might give to make that happen? Because we're now at $300,000 already given, so we're halfway there. And I just want to say praise and thank to all of you. If you can consider perhaps how God might lead you in that effort. Let's bow now and ask God to speak to us through his word. Father, we pause to acknowledge that you alone are worthy. And we acknowledge also that sometimes we forget that. And we focus on the worth of other things. But today, as we gather as your people, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, called by your name, we want you, by your word, to remind us that your call in our life is different, is to be different, to be holy as you are holy. And we fall short, but yet you are a gracious and good God. Speak to us now through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today in our series called Living Hope, we're in uh, the letter of First Peter. If you've been with us, you know, but perhaps you, or you're new or you're, you've forgotten. We're in a series uh, called Living Hope on the letter of First Peter. Peter wrote this letter to a group of churches, kind of house church movements, living in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, the northern part of Turkey to be circulated among these churches. And he begins by giving them a, a vision of, the, of what they're called to. And we have a memory verse, 1 Peter 1, verse 3. It's not on the screen this week, so some of you will probably just stare at me as I say it, but maybe a few of you have memorized it. Blessed be the God and Father. You can just mutter under your mask. I wouldn't be able to tell. <laughs> Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I can tell we have some work to do on our memory verse. But that's sort of the, the centerpiece of his letter and of our series. And he moves from this big vision of what God is doing, he moves into what does that mean? How does it look in our life? How does it translate to everyday living? called to be holy what does holiness really mean how does it look to be set apart for God and last week pastor Andrew preached about this what this looks like in terms of how we obey and live in submission to earthly authorities governmental authorities institutional authorities workplace authorities and so on and we obey those faithfully joyfully even even when they do things that are boneheaded and dumb up until the point at which those authorities would require us to disobey God's authority because we always have a higher allegiance, God himself. So Peter's now going to move to talk about, okay, what does this look like when we translate that into the relationship of marriage? Before we get to that, when we talk about marriage, first of all, I can't help saying that word without thinking of the princess bride. It's all I can do not to say marriage. It's what brings us together today. Some of you know to talk. Others of you are like, "What just happened to you?" <laughs> now I know, I know. Some of you out there, may uh, 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 perhaps you're single and you long to be married. And this, you're like, "Oh, great, the marriage weekend." It's hard for you. I just want to encourage you that you can. as, as important as marriage is, and it is. You can live a fulfilled life and fulfill all of God's call on your life without being married. It's not ultimate. God has a calling on different people's lives, and it might be for some of us, not to be married, and that too can be a gift and beautiful thing before God. So don't, I think sometimes in the church, we elevate marriage as if it's the only thing that can fulfill you. That's not true. Some of you long to be married, and this hopefully will prepare you for what it really is you're praying for and preparing for. And there are some of you here who've been wounded by marriages, toxic marriages. Failed marriages. Maybe your own, maybe you grew up in one that was abusive and ugly. And you don't want to hear this sort of thing. I just want you to know that God sees that, God knows that, and perhaps what he has to say to us might begin the healing process of the corruption that you experienced. There are so many reasons that we might be predisposed not to want to hear what God's word has to say about marriage. Because in our culture, people are getting married later, and marriage is not as highly viewed as it once was, and we're confused about what it means. And so in order to prepare our hearts, I reached out to several Chapel Street couples whose marriages I respect and asked them to share some wisdom over the decades that God has given them together. And so let's watch this, what they have to say to us. Who asked who out first? Oh, should we tell them? Go ahead.
1: I sat behind him in our English class and one day over his shoulder comes a note. I like two girls, you and Chris. Which one should I go with? <laughs> I wrote me, crossed out Chris, <clears throat> and tossed it back. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing that I, I think is key to a, a good Christian marriage is forgiveness. Without forgiveness and the spirit of forgiveness is impossible to love. Love is what comes from forgiveness. And before we can love one another, we must be able to forgive and forget. And I think we've tried to do that in our marriage. One of the key things, I think, in a relationship is to be kind to one another. And those little tiny acts of kindness grow into a big pile, a good pile of things. Every day looking for that way to serve is so incredibly important because over time that starts to build up to be a normalcy of your marriage and you just, you're just always finding ways to serve because marriage is not 50-50, marriage is 100-100. We don't hold grudges. And we don't expect perfection. Amen. And that's why we've been so happy The first thing that comes to my mind as far as speaking to a young couple would be to watch your expectations. Go into it with a heart of how can I complete the other person, not how can the other person serve me. Go into it knowing the role of of a husband and wife from a biblical perspective. I think it's important to uh, read the word together. Prayer together. Meals together. Marriage is kind of like two sinners committing to stay together till one of you dies. And if you love somebody more... Why'd you look at me when you said somebody dies? Oh, okay. (laughs) Because you're the other sinner in this group. Uh, (laughs) uh, But seriously, if, if... you love God more than you love me. And if you are kind, then all the other things that come into marriage, you can work through them. God knew what he was doing when he put us together, I'll tell you. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, we had, we've had our ups and downs, I'll tell you. But uh, through it all, victory.
0: Yeah. Well, we could just, we just wrap up in prayer, but we won't. It was such a gift to sit and listen to them share. I mean, that's just a small segment of over almost an hour and a half of listening to those couples share wisdom. And we hopefully will share more of the content with you um, in, in the future. But it was, it's a, it was a gift just to listen to God's grace and faithfulness to them over the years. Um, so now when we come to 1 Peter chapter 3... Um, Before we get to that text, we have to set the context. Context always matters so much to understanding God's word. Who's Peter writing to? What's he saying? What's happening in the world at that time? And as I mentioned a moment ago, he talks about marriage in the context of living as surrendered servants in the world. So let's go back to chapter 2 for just a moment. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. That phrase, not using your freedom. Like, we we have freedom in Christ, and we use it to bless other people and to become servants of God. We lay our freedom down. And our model for this, Peter says, at the end of chapter 2, is Jesus himself, who has all authority in heaven and on earth, and he willingly subjects himself to sinful human authority right remember before Pilate, Pilate says don't you realize that jesus i have the authority to put you to death and jesus says actually no you have no authority over me if it wasn't given to you by my father above and he says no one takes my life from me but i lay it down of my own accord so peter's saying as christ followers we have freedom and rights but we're willing to surrender those things for the good of other people and to in submission to god now, he moves into what it looks like between a man and a woman in this thing we call marriage. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now, there are going to be some trigger words. Hang on. We'll get to them. Prepare yourself. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. When they see your respectful and pure conduct... Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Okay, we're going to cover all this. I know, I know some of you are like squirming right now in your seats. I once read a passage from Ephesians 5, which uses similar language about subjection and submission to a young couple that was in premarital counseling, and she grit her teeth at me and says, don't you dare read that at my wedding. Because she grew up in a home where that was used as a spiritual club. Abusive. And we're going to talk about that. And I, you might find it interesting or maybe surprising to know that in the first century when Peter wrote this letter, these words would have been equally shocking and surprising and countercultural, but for different reasons. The gospel is always a kind of a disruptive grace in every historical context. It ought to be anyway. When he says, be subject. That's the Greek word hupotasso. It's a compound word meaning to place under. It referred to willingly placing yourself under the authority or the leadership of someone else. This is what Jesus did when he became subject to the will of the Father and to earthly human institutions even though he had all authority in heaven on earth. Now before we can talk about what this means in marriage, we have to talk about what it does not mean. I wish we didn't have to say these things, but we do. Because sadly this passage has been... It's been used uh, in ways that are sinful and wicked and ugly. So first, what biblical submission is not. Biblical submission does not mean enduring abuse. And again, I've been a pastor for over 20 years. This, I wish it didn't have to be said, but it does have to be said. Biblical submission does not mean that women have to endure emotional, spiritual, or God forbid, physical abuse in the home. That's evil and wicked and God hates it. I read an article that uh, that said that passages like this are the reason there's domestic violence in the church. I would counter the misapplication and corruption of passages like this is why. So what do we do with it? Do we tear it out and throw it away? Like Dead Poet Society, just rip this passage out, we don't like it. Ignore it, skip over it, just dismiss it. Well, it was an ancient time and they were patriarchal or whatever. I believe these words could be healing words for us, not hurtful words if we understand them. But I would say just this, if you are an abusive situation, and statistically speaking, there may be somebody here, where you're mistreated, where you're frightened in your own home, where you're threatened, reach out to us. God sees you. We want to care for you and help you find safety and healing. Second, biblical submission does not mean silent compliance. Not at all. It's not a call for wives to go along with every harebrained, selfish, foolish idea their husbands have, which there are Many. In my own marriage, I shudder to think if my wife had kept silent at certain times when I had bad ideas. Years ago, I was recruited by a church and asked if I would be interested in uh candidate for that senior pastor position, and I thought that I was, and I went into the process, and she didn't say a word about it until I was, you know, fairly far in the process and said, why are you doing this? What do you mean, why am I doing this? I got all mad and defensive like good pastors do, you know? <laughs> We had this argument. She said, no, I'm just, you know, if you think God's in it, but I'm just asking why. It was the voice of God, her wisdom, to directly, respectfully, but directly confront me on what was really driving this. I'm so thankful she said that because God used it and I wouldn't be here otherwise. So it's not a call to silent compliance, not at all. It's often the wisdom of wives that God uses to direct and bless their husbands, Biblical submission, third, does not mean all women to all men. This is a corruption and a perversion that I often hear in very conservative fundamentalist churches that say that all women are subservient to all men. That is not true. The Bible does not ever anywhere say that. That's craziness. That's not the call of, of the scriptures. And fourth, biblical submission does not mean women are inferior to men. Again, I feel like it goes without saying, but it needs to be said. In fact, Peter specifically says in verse 7, they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Co-heirs, equal. And he uses as an example for our submission to God's authority, and to any authority, Jesus Christ, who is co-equal with the Father, and yet submits to the Father's will. So it can have nothing to do with superiority or inferiority. So that's a taste of what it does not mean. Well, what does Peter mean when he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands? What's he talking about? What biblical submission is in verse 1 he says likewise meaning in the same manner as referring back to christ and to these uh, this call to be faithfully obedient to earthly authorities in the first century it was a given that wives were obedient to their husbands so that wasn't shocking to them and we'll talk about the shocking part in a minute first biblical submission is mutual biblical submission is mutual Meaning that we, all people, men and women, have a call to lay down our rights and surrender them to be obedient to God. Uh, In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives this beautiful, uh, glowing uh, depiction of Christian marriage and how it reflects the Godhead and in the church. And he begins in chapter 5 verse 21 with this verse, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Like the the first statement before he launches into what marriage is, he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It's mutual. Often I hear people talk about the submission in terms of like, who gets to call the shots? Who gets to make the decisions? Who holds the hammer? Who has the authority? And sometimes couples will make an appointment to come and see me, and they're at an impasse, and they kind of want the pastor to break the tie. I hate those meetings, by the way. Right, like, like, uh, basically, what they what want is, would you please tell him why he's an idiot? Would you please tell her that she has to get in line? Like, that's what, they don't say that, but that's what they're there for. It never goes well, just so you know. I recently had a conversation with a couple, where he was um, he has a great job opportunity, a, gr- a great promotion, but it means relocating. His kids are in school. His wife is very involved in ministry, and he's and 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 he came. They came to see me as a couple, and she said, "Look, I love." The ministry that I'm part of. Our kids are flourishing, but I don't want to hold him back if this is what God's call is. It, and it's a great opportunity. And he said, Look, I've I worked hard in my career, and this is a this is a, a special moment, but I don't want to do anything that would harm her because I love seeing her flourish in ministry and my kids. Neither one were seeking their own will, but how do we reconcile this and how do we come before God? That's mutual submission before Christ, toward each other. It was already accepted fact of first century Greco-Roman culture that women had very few decision-making rights in that culture. And everywhere Christianity spread in the ancient world, women were elevated, liberated, celebrated. Second, biblical submission is voluntary. This is so important. It's voluntary. Here's what this means. It is a gift that a woman gives to her husband. It is hers to give. It is never his to demand. It is never coerced, never manipulated, never, you never, it's, if men, if that's been you, you're wrong. It is hers to give. And it's a gift that she gives in order that you might be blessed and be the man God made you to be. It can never be taken from someone. That is abuse. Kathy Keller, the wife of pastor and author Tim Keller, writes this. It is the disposition of the wife to want to follow her husband and the inclination of her heart to trust him. However, there are times when a wife must say, my inclination is to follow you, but I can't follow you there because I have a higher authority than you, husband. It's the Lord. There are times when that happens. It's a wife who says, it's my desire that you would be submitted to Christ and would lead in such a way that we could joyfully partner together in seeking the will of God. It's the opposite of couples who come and say, could you break the tie? Third, biblical submission is powerful. The same way in that chapter 2, Peter says that by living uh, as surrendered servants in the world, people will see this and they'll praise and glorify God. So in other words, rather than railing against all the problems in the world, and there are many problems in the world, I'm not not ignorant of them and blind to them, But perhaps even when we disagree, the best thing we can do is live as faithful, obedient citizens, that people would see that and recognize it and glorify God. Here, Peter's saying to these women, now here's the historical context, in Asia Minor, women are coming to faith in Jesus Christ and their husbands are not there yet. What do they do? Do they leave them? No. Do they go home and beat them over the head? Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That doesn't work, ladies. What are they supposed to do? Peter's advice is live out your faith humbly, gently, faithfully in your own home. Live out the gospel in your own home and let that be the strongest witness to your husband. He says in verse 1 and 2, likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, meaning they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the conduct of the other wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. One without a word, just the sheer faithfulness and quality of your own faith lived out in your home is powerful. And frankly, this is relevant to our cultural context. I often as pastor see women who, uh, who come to our church, who, who are waking up to the gospel, who come to faith in Jesus through women's events or outreach or mom's events, and their husbands come along later. They're not to manipulate Or to badger, but to be, and not to be silent, but to live out their faith faithfully in the home. Next, biblical submission is beautiful. It's beautiful. I know that the world can call it ugly, but that's a distortion of what it means. Look at verses, I'll read verse 3, and then you'll see verse 4 on the screen. This is a powerful part of what Peter says here. Verse 3. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I preached this sermon last night, and a woman came up to me and said, I feel bad for my husband because when he got me, he didn't get a woman with a gentle and quiet spirit. <laughs> it here's what it does it's not talking about like i'm meek and i don't say a word at home it means gentle and quiet before the lord authentic and humble before the lord you are who you are your personality makes you beautiful in who you are it's not changing that it's saying submitted humbly before the lord and when peter talks about this adorning he's not let's be clear um, we're not going to collect your jewelry as you leave or anything like that. It's not saying that you can't braid your hair or wear gold jewelry. Peter's making a point about the emphasis of where we find true beauty. And that was relevant in the first century, and it's very relevant in the 21st century, isn't it? We live in a culture that's obsessed with the external. We have whole institutions designed to try to fend off aging. We have creams and lotions and potions and surgeries and all kinds of things to try to make us look younger. Industries developed about around this. Why? Because we're obsessed with, the, with body image and we're damaging young men and especially young women with this. Peter's saying something very profound to us here. He's not saying external beauty doesn't matter, but it does it's not ultimate. It fades. It's perishable. But what's imperishable beauty? What's unfading beauty? The hidden person of the heart. When I was dating my wife, I found her externally very beautiful. I still do. If you've seen her you know. It's true. Anyway, <laughs> but she spent one summer as working as, a, in, as a, a mission organization in Amsterdam, the red light district, working with very broken people off the streets. She kept a spiritual journal of that summer. When she came back, I was excited to reconnect with her. I'd missed her. And she let me read some of her journal entries, her prayers to God, prayers for me, prayers about our relationship and the things that she was experiencing. I was captivated by her spiritual beauty. So I was attracted by her external beauty. That's not wrong. That's natural. But I was held, captivated, drawn in by her spiritual beauty, the hidden person of the heart. So let me just say a word to you young men out there who will hope to be married someday if you're here. This is what you should be after. This is what you should care about. This is what you should pray for. This is what you should pursue in your own life and in a young woman someday. And young women, the same thing to you. Men and women... This is what matters. It's very precious in God's sight. He's telling us, true beauty, it doesn't fade. It only grows. Physically, we're all getting uglier. There's no avoiding it. We just are. I mean, we're, we're, we're keeping it as best we can, but it's coming for all of us, right? But unfading beauty is the hidden person of the heart. True beauty is a heart that is fully surrendered to Christ. Man or woman, this is beautiful and precious to God. A heart fully surrendered to Jesus. This is what we should all be going after. Okay, now, verse 1 through 6 are all toward the wives, at least mostly. And I'm sure some of you women are thinking, that doesn't seem fair. Six verses for, to the women and only one for the men. But hang on, because verse 7 is a doozy. Okay, let's read verse 7. First Peter 3, verse 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's talk through each of these words that are making you uncomfortable. I remember the first time I heard this verse, I was working as a, in a warehouse where I was a newly married, going to graduate school in theology, and a guy named Lazarus Peary, who was a Zambian uh, Bible uh, pastor, was at Wheaton College in the same graduate school program I was in. He shared this verse with me, and I was, a, I was brand new married. He would call up on the phone, and and my wife would answer and say, Hello, beautiful. Is ugly there? Meaning me. (laughs) Anyway, he shared this verse with me, and he was encouraging me. Jeff, how you treat your wife matters in your relationship to God. It will hinder your prayers, he was saying. I've never forgotten that. Okay, he says, likewise, meaning in the same manner as. So what he's talking about here is that in the same manner as what? In the same manner as Christ lay down his rights. In the same manner as you're called to surrender live surrendered servants in the world to other authorities, you husbands also live this way. Live with your wives in an understanding way. This Greek phrase literally means according to knowledge. And it doesn't mean the things you think you already know, husbands. What it means is according to the knowledge of who she is. I often hear men make the joke, I can't understand women. Who can make sense of women? That's a common joke made. Here, hey, guys, you don't have to understand all women. Don't even try. You only have to understand the one God gave you. Become a student of your wife. What makes her feel loved? What makes her feel safe? What encourages her? What makes her flourish? What does she need from you to become the woman God made her to be? How can you sacrifice so that she would be blessed? Study those things. Pray about those things. Think about those things. Ask God for insight about those things and get after that. That's what it means to live with your wife in an understanding way. I want to understand her. I want to know her heart. I want to know how I uniquely God's given me to her to bless her in a way that nobody else can. My wife will often ask me, sometimes she'll leave voicemails and she'll leave like a little detail at the end of the voicemail just to see if I listen to the whole thing. (laughs) I've learned to do that now. It's a trick it's a trap you know and sometimes my wife will uh, say things to me and she'll will be watching something or she'll say do you remember when we were there do you remember what i was wearing or she'll ask about little details and i often my answer is uh red i don't know i figured out why she asked that she wants to know i'm paying attention she just wants to know that i'm paying attention i think what peter is saying here to husband is pay attention study her she's a gift Then he says, showing honor. This phrase is interesting. Do you remember when, in the example when we read, when Peter said uh, that Sarah called Abraham Lord? That probably made some of you ladies a little uncomfortable. Um, there, we could talk about that. We don't quite have time. But the, the showing honor is the same phrase used to refer to the emperor. So even if you have to call him Lord, he has to honor you like the emperor. So you're the empress. I guess it goes both ways. Showing honor, meaning to ascribe proper value to. Worth two what is your wife worth to you you could say something but it's demonstrated in the way that you love her and serve her showing honor to her i i reached out to some chapel street wives and asked them what, how does your how do your husbands show honor here's some of the things they said he shows me honor by being intentional about us having time together i love it most when i don't have to ask he, he knows that, uh, that feeling secure is important to me and he works very hard to provide. Plus he brings me coffee every morning. <laughs> every morning we spend special time together at our table in our bedroom. We call it table time. My husband shows me honor by loving me unconditionally for who I am today rather than the memory of who I used to be or the ideal of who I might become. My husband honors me by creating space and cultivating time spent with the Lord. He knows the best gift he can give me is showing me by example who he looks to and who he's dependent on. My husband shows me honor by being my biggest cheerleader. My husband always sees the best in me. He builds me up in public and in private. He makes me feel secure. He honors me by seeking to be the spiritual head of our household By praying and reading, and he's always excited to share with me and our boys what he's learning. He's my true partner in big things and in small. My husband esteems my call to ministry, and he sacrifices so that I can do the work that I'm called to. When I read those things, I feel like, well, we have some good guys that are getting it right here. And I also think, boy, I I fall short. Anybody relate? It's not meant to make you feel guilty, but to help us see this, this amazing thing God has given us. Okay, now comes the good part. Woman as the weaker vessel. Don't you love it? Okay, what does he mean by that? Why is that in there? Let's take that out. Here's what he's saying. It has nothing to do with value, competence, capacity. The Greek word is interesting. It's hard to translate. He's, he's not talking even about physical strength, even though we could make the case that, generally speaking, men are stronger than women, although I think my daughter could beat up most of the guys in here. Like, there's, I know some pretty strong women. That's not what he's saying. He's saying two things. In that culture... It was, women were weaker because they had no rights. They were more vulnerable. They were weaker. They were vulnerable. And so he's saying, it was like an understood given. Secondly, he's saying this, and this relates to us today. When a woman gives herself to a man, that she's making herself vulnerable to you. In that sense, weaker. That is a precious gift. You never mistreat that. You never abuse that. You treasure that. You protect that. You honor that as a gift from the Lord. The most shocking and countercultural part of all this is what, what Peter's saying here is when he says that they are heirs with you of the grace of life. Women were not heirs in the ancient world. The sons were. There's no difference, he's saying. There's no distinction. They're heirs with you of the grace of life. And the way you treat her reflects your relationship to God. So that your prayers would not be hindered. Think about that, men, for just a minute. What Peter is what God is saying to you, married men in here, if you think that you can pray to God to bless your business or help you in this area of your life, and then you go home and you ignore and you exploit and you mistreat and you neglect your wife, you are kidding yourself. God sees exactly what's going on in your heart. I'll put it this way. How you treat your wife is evidence of your true relationship with God. I used to have a friend who would say, you want to see somebody's real faith? Watch them in competition like on the basketball court or on the, like in, or out if, how they act when they hit a bad shot in golf. Like see them under stress, you know? I would say watch them at home. How they treat their wife and their children. I do believe the Bible puts a responsibility of of leadership on a man. But the only kind of leadership that the Bible recognizes is self-sacrificing, laying yourself down for the good of the other. It is never about who has the power. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about willingness to lay yourself down out of reverence to God and to bless someone else. Here's the the trick. What happens often is... Men hear this, these teachings and you think, yes, why won't my wife be more like that? And women hear this and goes, well, I would if he would only get in line and be more like that. You're missing it. Focus on what God says to you. And some of you out there, I know this is painful and hard for you to hear. Perhaps those of you that long to be married or have been wounded by bad marriages or in one now, God would give you a vision because what he's talking about is beyond just your personal happiness. The teaching from the Bible on marriage is not just how to live your best life. It's not just about how to make you happy. In fact, Gary Thomas in his book, Sacred Marriage, says marriage is not given to make us happy, but to make us holy. Now, it's not to make us miserable, but if you focus on your own happiness, your own fulfillment, your own joy, that's the fastest road to misery and frustration. But the beautiful irony is if you focus on Christ and the good of the other in that relationship, The beautiful part is you get filled up as a result. You get blessed and fulfilled. Because Christian marriages are meant to be a picture to the world, imperfect though it is, of God's grace and mercy and love. And whether you're in one or not, we all need that. The world needs more pictures of God's mercy and grace and love in action, doesn't it? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you humbly and acknowledging that for different reasons, for many of us, we struggle with this kind of thing. We struggle because we fall short. We struggle because we've been wounded. We struggle because of our own pride. And we're asking your spirit to speak to us, to teach us. Specifically, God, I pray for all the husbands in the room, that you would open up their eyes, that they would see what a great gift you have given them in their wives. And you, by your spirit, would teach them to be like Christ and lay down their life. And for all the wives in the room, God, open up their eyes to see what a great gift they can give to their husbands. For all in the room who've been wounded or hurt or long to be married, God, speak the words of grace that you know they need. For all of us, God, teach us that when we talk about marriage, we're really talking about your love for us because, Jesus, you call us your bride. You love us as the perfect spouse. You sacrifice for us. We are eternally grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.